Welcome to This is for the CV, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit. This is a podcast by Anthony and Rebecca, two professors in communication and political science, chatting about politics, pop culture, and the things in between. Dr. Christina Mitchell teaches political science, and she works in curriculum and publishing. She is the former director of online and regional education for Texas Tech University's political science department. She joins us to talk about equity in higher education, including best practices, student evaluations, and parental leave policies. It's Rebecca. I want to give a quick content warning about today's episode. We briefly discuss sexual assault. I also want to share that this is our final episode of the year. We are grateful to our guests who shared their time and expertise with us and to our listeners for supporting us as we tried to stay connected and engaged this year. Sincerely, thank you for listening. Hello, Anthony. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Dr. Christina Mitchell. Hello. Thanks for being with us today. Of course. Yeah. So we invited you on because, well, one, you used to be my boss lady, Um, but that's not why we invited you on. We invited you on to talk about your unique and yet not so unique experience being a woman and a mom in higher education. And it seems particularly apt right now because you have a newborn with you at home and you had how many, how much time off before you came back? Um, This time I had six weeks. Okay. So you had time off this time. A luxury. Yes. Um, But in previous, well, with previous births of your children, you had no time off. And so we wanted to talk to you about, you know, that process and and some of the commonalities, but how it's also really different state by state, some of your research and see where that takes us. But first, will you tell us how you got into higher education and maybe also how you sort of transitioned out to a point and why? Sure. So I um, went to grad school and got my PhD in 2012. And as you both know, the job market is not particularly good ever. Um, It's probably worse now than it was then, but um, I was really kind of stuck on looking for what kind of career path, um, you know, tenure track wasn't really an option for the kind of program I went to um, and the kind of record, you know, I didn't have a publishing record when I left. So I ended up as a visiting assistant professor at Texas Tech University just because my department chair knew the department chair there. Um, So it was really a uh, who you know kind of situation. And after a couple of years, they hired me on full time as an administrator. Um, So I ran the online program and taught uh, online and face-to-face classes at Texas Tech for a few years. Then in 2018, after a couple of years of working part-time on the side with publishing companies, Um, a publishing company offered me a full-time job in the K-12 space. So I'm actually working in curriculum and publishing for K-12 students. And I still teach part-time at San Jose State University here in the Bay Area. You left us in Texas alone. (laughs) I did. So you talked about the sort of environment of trying to get a job in higher education, particularly dictated based on your PhD. So when you started with Texas Tech, you also began to have children or did you have children in your PhD program? I can't recall. So I actually had two of my kids during grad school and that was a crazy experience. Um, 
So there's not really provisions, as you guys probably remember from your grad school experience, there's not really provisions for grad students to take any time off for anything. Grad students aren't very well protected by any of the leave programs. Um, you know, employment's part-time and they're not really able to bargain, especially in Texas. I was fortunate that my professors themselves were pretty accommodating. So I was able to get a modified work assignment for the semesters that I had kids. So the first baby, it was in my third year, I think. And so I was able to just work from home for six weeks and then come back to the office, but I was still working. And so that was a, you know, that was a challenge. Even when people want to be accommodating for you, there's still a limit to what they can offer and, you know, what they're offer. Um, then I got pregnant um, unexpectedly with my second baby in grad school. And I just remember telling my dissertation advisor, like, okay, well, I'm pregnant again. And, you know, kind of the look in his face was like, she's never going to finish. And I understand why, because having two kids in grad school is really hard. And I, and many people might not be able to finish with two kids in grad school, um, but it still definitely didn't feel like moms were particularly prioritized in making sure that we had the resources we need to finish. And I know I'm not the only grad student, even from my program who had kids in grad school and felt the same way. So how did you finish? <laughs> um, I actually put my kids in Mother's Day out, which I miss. They don't have that on the West Coast. It's a two day a week, you know, usually at a church kind of program. Mm -hmm. Mother's Day out two days a week. And I drove to Starbucks, bought one latte on my, you know, grad student salary and stayed there the whole time they were at Mother's Day out writing my dissertation. I don't know how I finished, honestly. I think at one point I actually Googled, like, how do you buy a PhD? Um, oh. you know, how do I just like <laughs> this, cheat my way through? Um, because it was so stressful, but um, I definitely have that appreciation for that Starbucks for letting me work there for six hours, two days a week on one latte. On one latte that you slowly sipped. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So you made it through, you get this job at Texas Tech, and then you have another child. So what did that process look like? Were there more protections, fewer? Um, I think at that point, I was still not technically full-time at Texas Tech. I remember struggling because I didn't have health insurance, and this was pre-Affordable mm -hmm. um, Care Act. So there was no requirement to cover maternity coverage, even on like private policies. Um, so, and I think at the time my husband didn't have a policy that would accept me and cover my maternity because his job was new also. So it was really hmm. very stressful. I didn't have health insurance until, um, the last month of my pregnancy. So I was paying for everything out of pocket because I didn't have any paid maternity leave provisions. There weren't at the time at Texas tech, um, there was no way to have paid leave. You could have unpaid leave, but I couldn't afford to have unpaid leave. So I ended up taking two weeks off completely and then coming back to work just because we couldn't afford to not get paid for that long. And is that when you had Finn in the office with you? Yes, I brought my baby to work when he was two weeks old because I didn't have anywhere else. So again, in some ways, it's fortunate that I was able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, still able to breastfeed because I had the baby with me. Um, but no one should be back in an office with a two-week-old baby. No one should be back in an office with a six-week-old baby. No. One of my staff members had a baby a couple years after me and was struggling with the same issue. Like, what do I do with this baby? And after she took her paid, her PTO with the baby, 
I just told her, just bring the baby to work. It's fine. I don't care. Um, stay with your baby as long as you need to. And so she was doing the same thing, bringing her baby to work from the time he was maybe six weeks old until, you know, until they're too old to let you get work done. But at, at some point, it's really ridiculous that anyone's expected to go back to work at any time before their baby's three or six month old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, I mean, my wife took four months both times. And it was still a challenge when they went back to daycare. It, was st- it wasn't like, oh, and now it's time. It was, you know, she felt bad. They felt bad. I felt like it wasn't ideal. And so, you know, two weeks, six weeks, you know, we've been in, off- I've seen offices where it's like, oh, we're super progressive. We have stations where mothers can nurse. We have places where employees <laughs> can nurse. It's like, well, should they be doing that at work? Like, shouldn't they be at the house? You know, like there's all that around it as well. Yeah, I think, you know, I I think you're right that maybe some mothers want to come back at four months and want to have that space to to pump or to nurse or whatever they need to do at the office. But the fact that there's not a choice, it's not a choice for mothers to say, okay, I'm ready now. I want to come back and, you know, thank you for making the space for me so I can still breastfeed my baby. Um, But but there's no choice. You have to go back or you basically have to quit. Um, So it's really difficult to figure out how to navigate that. And that brings us to today. And you have a newborn in the room next to you that may or may not grace us with her presence in a little bit. Yes. You're in California now rather than Texas. So how does that process look different? I know you're part-time in the world of higher ed, but you also have a private position. Yeah. So I have a full-time job based here in California. And California as a state has paid parental leave um, and paid disability leave. So we, we all pay for it out of our paychecks every, you know, every month. And when I needed to take six weeks off, um, they offer actually a total, I think you can get up to maybe 18 weeks if you want it, um, partially paid. It was a lot better to have the option of paid leave here in California. Um, the process for getting the paid leave is still really difficult. There's a lot of hoops you have to go through and forms you have to fill out and calls and Um, It is kind of a pain to deal with, but at least it's an option. But even better, my part-time job at San Jose State teaching as an adjunct, they offer full paid six weeks of leave. So you have a baby and you just don't work for six weeks and someone else takes over and Hmm. you get paid the same. It was so easy and amazing. I kept emailing the faculty representative who is in charge of this kind of thing of approving these leaves and being like, wait, so it's paid, you know, wait, really? Are With you- money. I'm really, yeah, I'm actually going to get money for this. <laughs> so yeah, it was so astonishing that I couldn't, I kept emailing to be like, wait, just, just double check <laughs> six weeks. I don't have to work and I still get paid. And they were like, yes, Christina. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Meanwhile, for your Texas Tech course, you asked, can I add you as a TA in case I need you to do anything because there's no time off? Right, exactly. Yeah. Emailing my students on the day I'm in the hospital. She did do that. As mm. someone who was added to her course, she did do that. <laughs> like, hi, I'm in labor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's wild. So something that so many people are living through, but I am not personally living through is mothering and parenting young children in a pandemic. So I know that you and Anthony both have maybe less than ideal situations. So how are y'all doing and what kinds of things are you doing to kind of make it through the day? Wine, maybe? 
No, no. How old are your children? Six and two. Wow. Yeah. So one, you know, we got the virtual school going on and she's taken to it pretty well. You know, she's on a schedule. Routine is, is everything, you know, but the two-year-old, there's no negotiation with the two-year-old. When he's had it, he's had it. So I, I spend my day trying to make sure he doesn't have it and just trying to keep him occupied until around one when it's nap time. And then it's like, okay, from one to four before I start getting dinner ready, that's when I can actually work. At the beginning of the semester, it was more like trying to find that time where it worked for me to be able to get stuff done. But I realized very quickly, if I tried to plan to do stuff between the hours of eight and one, when they didn't get done, I would beat myself up about it. But instead, it's like, okay, no, that's gravy now. One to four is really the time to get work done. Anything before that is out the window. But, you know, I don't know about you, Christina, but it's just, we went from, like you, we had both of us at home. And then, like, very abruptly and with not a whole lot of discussion, she just got put back into the office. And we had to, like, reorganize that. So it's like, I don't know how you and your husband do it, like, how you work it out. But, you you know, it's different for everybody, right? Yeah, it has been really difficult. So I share custody of my oldest three kids with my ex-husband. And at the beginning of the pandemic, my husband and I were in Texas with near the boys and my ex-husband was there too. And he was working. My husband and I were both working from home. And so the three children, I didn't have the baby yet, but the three children were just kind of shuttling back and forth between our houses, depending on who was working and what time and when was my class teaching and Mm -hmm. When's my husband on calls? He works um, in tech. And so he's on calls with China and India. So he works in the middle of the night. And it was just this big shuffle. And it was nice that we could all work together to make sure somebody had the children at all times. But then for the summer, when the kids are just with us completely full time, and both of us are trying to work from home, and I was hugely pregnant, it was really hard to figure out like, who is gonna, you know, who's gonna monitor the kids at each time. Childcare wasn't really an option. Like, you know, like you're saying, um, with a pandemic, there's no full-time care. So nobody's work is really getting all the way done. We're all just kind of functioning at 60%, if that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Rebecca, you say things aren't necessarily ideal. I just, I try to keep reminding myself, it's like ideal, it's like, Ideal is being able to know that it's like, yeah, this is 60, 65, 70% of what I normally do, but I'm not getting fired. Like, mm-hmm. there, there's plenty. It's like, man, 60, I have plenty of jobs where 60% is going to get you fired. But this <laughs> somehow isn't the case. And everybody seems relatively understanding. And so I'm just like, okay, yeah, we're going to float this out. But now it's like, okay, here come the vaccines. I think people are going to be less understanding once that's out in the public. And people are going to be like, well... Get back to it. But the fine print is these vaccines ain't for these kids. So I'm like, mm-hmm. I got a six and a two-year-old. What? Like, oh, mm-hmm. we're just going to shove them out the door again? Like, I have no idea what's going to happen in the spring. Right? Like, my classes are listed as face-to-face slash hybrid. I have no idea what's about to happen. Because I'm like, I ain't going nowhere. So, you know. When I've seen public health professionals talk about we're not going to have a like a big celebration, the war is over type of reveal where we can all go out into the streets and cheer. It's going to be like the move from winter to spring where there's a very slow melt. And then finally, you know, you go outside again. I don't know that our industries will respond as though that's the reality. 
That's true. So Cal State system here in California has already agreed that all of the classes are going to be virtual in the spring. Um, California has been a little bit sort of ahead of the curve in, in making some of these tough decisions, I think. Um, our fall classes were pushed, like the fall 2020 classes were pushed online really early in the pandemic, just because they, they were really realistic about what this looks like. So it is kind of nice to know that, that it'll be at, it'll, I'll be at home. I won't be expected to go teach a class in person yet. Um, but I agree with you, Anthony, that at some point it feels like I'm just doing what I can to not get fired. Like I'm <laughs> at this, like, what's the bare minimum I can do so that they won't fire me? And I am also anxious about when will the bare minimum go back up to mm-hmm. 80 or 90% or 100% or 120% to make up for everything. Mm-hmm. Else. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, and, and you have particular sales goals you have to reach too, right? Yeah. So I work in curriculum and sales and, um, you know, I have set sales targets that affect my salary dramatically. And this year when the pandemic hit, all of the schools shut down their curriculum purchases because buying new curriculum is not a priority in a pandemic. What? (laughs) Um, But of course that doesn't change what my sales goal was. And so I just Mm -hmm. make which, you know, I'm fortunate that we can still eat and have a roof over our head, even without that extra money. But it sure does change your calculation for what your year end looks like. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Rebecca shared some things with me, like your scholarship, some some of your scholarship, and then uh, this article you wrote for the Chronicle of Higher Ed about basically just a horrifying interaction with a student who I mean set the stage you're in your office the phone rings and this is Dr. Mitchell and what yeah the the student started graphically describing how he was going to rape me in my office um it was awful and it does tie into the scholarship that you were talking about because I think it really starts from the point that women are treated fundamentally different in higher ed than men. Um, So not only have I not heard of a man getting a rape threat on the phone in their office, um, but, you know, it doesn't even have to be that dramatic to look at the ways that women experience being professors differently. Um, So some of my research focuses on student evaluations, and I have two publications on this. The first looked only at gender, and we had a white male professor and a white female professor um, teaching identical online courses, exactly identical, in no way different. And the woman got lower, the woman, which was me, got lower evaluations on the quantitative scale than the man did. Um, And then I have another publication, similar research design, identical courses, identical everything, looking at both race and gender and found that, you know, not surprisingly, the white male professors got higher evaluations than either the women or the professors of color. And so it just really speaks to the point that, that not everyone is treated equally as professors. You know, we can talk about how mothers are treated differently, parents are treated differently, women, people of color, um, people are not in the sort of traditional position of power experience being a professor differently yeah um 
and you make this claim in, in, in the article and in the, the scholarship that, that this started long before, like, and uh, many of my colleagues, Rebecca included, told me horror stories from the classroom, things that nobody would fix their mouth to say to me ever. Like questioning credentials, questioning analysis of of content, questioning rubrics about how content is assessed. I got my own struggles in terms of like how I get down as a professor and all that and in this space. But being disrespected live and in color in the classroom, in public, that ain't one of them. And so you, you speak a lot about culture. So how would you say that that culture is socially constructed on campuses? That's a really good question. Um, and and I think you're right that it it starts a long time before we get to the campus environment. I When we looked at, we looked at Rate My Professors, which was awful, of course. Um, and we looked at Oof. the content students were writing. Um, and we just tried to find, you know, what kinds of language are the students using to describe women versus describing men? And we found that students just evaluate women on a different set of criteria. Um, women are evaluated on our personalities and on our nurturing. And, and that's consistent with how society constructs a woman's role from the beginning. And we're all susceptible to this, even I, so I have three boys, my older kids are three boys, and now I have a baby girl. And, you know, I am the most, like, I consider myself a feminist and a gender equality warrior, and I think gender is a social construct, and yet here I am buying pink flower dresses for my little girl, and, you know, trying to, um, you know, get little dollies, and so it starts really early in what what are we teaching our children that women do that's different than what men do? And that filters all the way up. And of course, you know, it's really difficult to just say, well, I'm not going to do what society says. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to give my little girl pink flowers and ruffles because pink flowers and ruffles are so cute. Mm -hmm. <laughs> very, but very cute. It, yeah. And, and teaching kids to nurture with dollies is good too. And so it's really hard to, to see what society has created in terms of gender roles and see yourself aligning with those roles and not really knowing how to, how to change it or how to, how to work outside of the, that construct. Because you mentioned Ray, my professor, I looked, I just looked at mine and I have a one that popped up, let's see, a couple of days ago, and it says, it's easy to hang on every word she says because she is smoking hot. And that's supposed to be a compliment though, right? Like that's them saying, great job at your job because I like to look at your face. Right, exactly. I've gotten those too, where people mention my appearance. You know, I've had like, oh, she looks really good for having kids. Like, uh. For one thing, I'm like, can't I just look good, period? Does it have to be for having kids? Dang. Um, Enough but, you know, qualify. students commenting, yeah, students commenting <laughs> right? on your appearance is, is just like wildly irrelevant. And this is what the criteria is that we're being evaluated on. This factors into those student evaluation scores. And those scores are used to rehire us. Um, that is part of the way we're evaluated in our promotions and our tenure and our raises and our, um, you know, it's, it's really problematic. It's weird what you guys bring up, uh, rate my professor. 
I don't I don't look at mine as often as I used to. But everybody who I meet that teaches, I look up theirs. I you know I'm I'm that dude. I look up everybody's stuff, right? But I remember when like the chili pepper was there, I oh. wanted it, and when I got it, I was happy I got it. And then when they took it off, I was like, why'd y'all take that off? Like, what, you know, and then you go look up, like, why they took it off. It's like, oh, okay, that's why they took it off. Like, okay, I see that. But it's like, if that's a metric, I want it. Like, I, I remember thinking that. I was like, yep, check, got that, right? Like, we're fly over, you know, because it's like, whatever it is, this is what people look, people, students look at that stuff, and that's what fills your class up. Mm-hmm. And filling a class yes. up is what keeps you employed. So it's like, okay, I want yep. this thing as high as possible, because that's the metric. Exactly. You're exactly right. And so if we're saying our rehiring, our employment is contingent on students enrolling, which they do often based on rate my professors, and it's contingent on our evaluations, which, um, you know, is, is based on our attractiveness and our, you know, nurturing if you're a woman and easy and all of these things that can improve things. Our incentive structures really move away from being about educating students. So if you tell a professor the only way you get rehired is if your students give you really high marks in terms of your you know, student evaluations. That professor is now suddenly incentivized to be really easy, to grade really nice, to be funny, and not necessarily to push students to be their best because when students get pushed, they, they don't like that. It's uncomfortable for them. Um, and so we're gonna try and keep our students from experiencing discomfort. And in doing that, we're probably shafting them in terms of their education. So it really creates bad incentives for professors. I wanted to ask you about uh, the the design, the course design and delivery that made up the data for the for the studies, right? Because when I'm looking at that, and you're describing like what the program was, it's like I'm in charge of these five thousand students, but I do it via mm. TA lab assistant instructors but I, the buck stops with me I'm the instructor of record but these ki- these students never see me really until you know the grades come out and I'm the decider on these things and I'm I'm looking at that and I'm like okay 5000 students in a semester that other people are teaching and they their only interaction with you is if there's a problem that doesn't sound like course design that is set up in your favor in terms of being evaluated on your instructive pedagogical knowledge, like me with my 33,000, 4,000 level students or my 10 grad students that I can build an actual rapport with, Mm -hmm. that the instructional communication data is very plain on how to build rapport and immediacy and all that. I'm like 5,000 students in a semester, you can't build no immediacy with that, it's impossible. So how do you feel, you know, you say you were an an administrator before, there's these constraints like they did that to you because it was cost effective to do it because you're super competent, not because it was helpful for the students or you. Right. Exactly. Um, and I think as we see more more students enrolling in college, um, we're going to see more situations like this. So. There's no way really to get five, now it's up to seven, I think, 7,000 students every semester through an intro class with those 30-person classes you're talking about, Anthony. I am a huge proponent that the best way for students to learn is with a tenure-track full-time professor in a class with 30 other people. Because the the professor has some job security, they're going to be there many years, Um, They're not stressed about the 20 other classes that they're adjuncting for, and they can actually build that rapport with those students. 
-hmm. But as we're seeing state budgets getting slashed for higher education, um, we're starting to see universities look for ways to deliver the education that the students have to get, right? I mean, we're Mm -hmm. getting these students through college, but we don't have enough tenure track professors to teach them in those small classes. Um, Even before our online class, it wasn't possible. We had students in 400 person sections and that's not better. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. a single lecturer in front of 400 students isn't actually giving the students a great, you know, college experience or education. And so putting the students in these big online classes is one way to make sure that the students get their degree, right? Because this, these intro classes are often seen as checkboxes for the students, their degree. And you can build an online course in a way that engages students, that at least tries to get them to, to engage with the material better than they would in the 400 person lecture hall. But you're right that it puts the professors in a really difficult position. So I, I was getting a lot of really, um, really wildly inappropriate comments on Rate My Professors, um, calling me like the devil incarnate and um, just really wild stuff. And so I finally got them to take it down. I had to um, submit police reports and all that kind of thing. But they took my Rate My Professors down. I think it's, it's there now for San Jose State. God knows what it says. I don't look anymore because it was, you know, it's awful. But, but giving professors... There's another woman who does the same job that I used to do there at Texas Tech who has these 7,000 students. And I feel for her because it's awful. Um, You only see the worst side of students Mm -hmm. and they're only seeing the worst side of you. I got really Mm -hmm. cynical about students after doing that for a few years. Mm -hmm. And now that I've spent two years teaching small classes in California, because we're unionized, we can't be asked to teach giant classes in the same way that you can in Texas. It's taken a couple of years, but I'm starting to like students again. Hmm. yeah it's it's so i don't know because yeah that intro life that large lecture life that's not my life it it never really was in higher ed like i don't and the department chairs would never even like we have legitimate discussions like okay this class is capped at 26 are we going to move it to 27 and people are bent like people are (laughs) are bringing like all the research like nah we can't go to 27 and if we do it's only for this amount of time like we have these discussions you know because it's like nah i don't think i can do that and and we've all been in these huge classes Mm -hmm. and uh, i i don't I mean, my 400 person class for art appreciation in college, you know, I, I was in this huge stadium hall. And um, the only thing I really remember about it was that the professor wouldn't let us go to the bathroom. And so like that, <laughs> I think back to like, what did I learn in a 400 person class? Nothing, you know, I learned yeah, nothing. not a whole lot. But I do remember my intro classes with 30 or 40 students. I do remember those. And I remember little tidbits of things that I learned. And I think it would be so much better if our students really got to engage with all sorts of different content. Um, I saw a thing on Twitter that was just saying, you know, we've been pushing STEM on students for like 20 years now and saying STEM, STEM, STEM's the only thing that matters. And then, you know, just like shoveling students through these intro humanities and social science courses. And now we're wondering why we're in the situation we are with our democracy collapsing, you know, like, I wonder why, if we're just shuttling students through political science like it doesn't matter, then, you know, it's not a mystery how we ended up here. When people say, I did my own research and it means I watched some, I watched some YouTube videos. Exactly, because, you know, they're, they're being taught how to do math and how to do engineering and 
And that's, it's a different thing than learning the process of humanities and the process of social science. Right. I, I remember having a conversation with uh, Joanne Keaton. She came to like our small group class and guest taught. And she's like a giant in the comm field. And I remember somebody was posing that question to her about how much resources we put towards STEM and, and is communication really with it and the social sciences and all like that. And basically her point was, well, okay, you can be an engineer, you can be whatever you want to be, but if you don't know how to talk to people, I need to know everything you ever built so I can avoid it because it's not going to last. It's going to crash. It's going to fail. It's going to be faulty. It's going to blow up because nobody <laughs> knew how to actually, you knew how to do all the tasks, but you didn't know how to work together and you definitely didn't know how to communicate anything to the public. And so, you know, as we've, We've, we've almost stratified the idea that learning for learning's sake is valuable, except in certain institutions, you know, like it doesn't, if, if you go to Rice or if you go to Sarah Lawrence or you go to St. Edwards or you go to St. Mary's, right? Like, oh, you're in a 30 person class. You do mm -hmm. intro or not, but you had to pay for that, right? You go to big public school. Well, hey, uh, I don't know. You, you get those classes if you're deemed necessary once you're a junior and a senior, maybe if you made it that far, but you know. What, what, St. Edwards has like two, 2,500 students. Trinity has like, you know, but Trinity costs 60 grand. So it's like, th there it is. Like th th that's what it is. Exactly. And, and so the answer used to be that the state government would pay, uh, would make up for that difference, right? So if, mm -hmm. if Trinity costs $60,000, um, you know, maybe Texas Tech would cost $60,000 too if we had these tiny classes with, full-time faculty, but the state government would make up $55,000 of that mm. 60. And so that you're only paying the five that you mm -hmm. would pay for a public education. Um, but those budgets have just continually been slashed. And some of that is, is this anti higher ed perception that we see, um, you know, we, especially in the Republican party, this idea that, that college is that, you know, professors are, are trying to indoctrinate their students yeah, and yeah. make them into you know, I don't, I don't really know. I can't get my students to read the syllabus, but same, same, same. Um, but, but I think we could have that. We could have small classes in, in higher ed public institutions, but the state budgets just aren't there for it. You're in the K through 12 space now. Do you feel like there is an assault on K through 12 public education via this phrase? school choice? That's a really good question. Um, and I have to admit that I'm not an expert, of course, on, on school choice and vouchers. And it is something that isn't quite like in the zeitgeist as much as it was in the George Bush era. I think mm -hmm. that's not as much of a, of a thing, but I do see a lot of charter schools. So I work mostly in science curriculum. And so I, you know, I work with large public districts on their science curriculum, and I work with small charter schools on their curriculum. And the charter schools really vary in quality almost as much as public schools do. Um, so we've got some charter schools that are really geared toward really wealthy families that wanna pull their kids out of public school. And we've got some charter schools that you know are trying to reach poor communities with varying levels of success. But I think that the biggest problem we have with K-12 ed education is the way it's funded. 
the fact that it's funded with property taxes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's just inevitably creating massive inequality. Mm-hmm. Rich people's school districts get money from the rich people's big houses <laughs> and the poorer school districts don't have the property tax revenue. So it's really abhorrent that that we've created a system that does this on purpose. Yeah, it's almost like it was designed that way. <laughs> exactly. It's almost like they did that almost. intentionally. Oh, I had a baby coming. Yeah. All right. She should sort of quiet down a little bit. Full disclosure, you now have your baby with you and she's feeding. And if they're baby noises, everyone understands. Yes. And if they don't, they suck. <laughs> we invite you to leave as a listener. <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, well, yeah, on a podcast, you know, about how it can be difficult to be a mother and still, you know, work in higher ed or just work in general, especially when, you know, there is no child care available um, due to the pandemic. Right. It's been good to see, like you were saying earlier, Anthony, it's been good to see that plenty of people have been really understanding, um, even when some people haven't. Mm -hmm. It seems like the majority of people have shifted and those voices get a little bit louder if there are a few people who are less understanding. Right, exactly. K-12 education, I agree with you that it was designed this way on purpose. Sadly. So with the pandemic and the shift to online education, we've seen a lot more resources for both the higher education sphere and the K through 12 sphere, but also for educators in terms of best practices. And I air quoted that on what we should do for online to maximize, to make things pretty, to make things engaging. And so have you seen certain trends to push things that you find not to be very useful based on your experience in your research for online education? And are there also things that might actually be helpful for us to be thinking about as we've been forced to do some more online work? So Rebecca, you and I actually went to a distance learning conference a couple of years ago where we were presenting research on these sort of best practices in quotes. So I had done some of some empirical analysis of classes using different strategies, either following the best practices or not. And I really found no difference between the student outcomes, either in their grades or their evals, based on whether the class was designed according to best practices or not. And so when I presented this research, I think we got some audible cheers from the audience when we told them, you know, it it doesn't matter how you design your class in terms of Bloom's taxonomy, like what verbs you use to write your learning outcomes, or Gagne's nine events of instruction in terms of what order you expose students to material. Um, It doesn't matter. The students learn the same. The students perceive the class the same. You know, professors really can just design courses in the way that's best for them, um, in the way that makes the most sense for them, rather than being constrained by these not empirically proven, these just some, you know, some guy just just said, I really think that this is how we should write learning outcomes. Um, and that's really it. That's all Bloom's did. He Bloom. He just he just thought this was a good idea and wrote about it. And now we're all taking it as as fact. And that's been really frustrating for some professors who really want to know what's the evidence that this works. Mm-hmm. And some studies have found, if I'm remembering correctly, that it helps us kind of organize our thinking in terms of, oh, what are objectives that are measurable? But if you're an instructor of a college course, you probably understand 
measurable outcomes and, and, and what makes sense there. And so which verb you use and that being dictated in terms of whether your online course or your face-to-face course gets like approved, the syllabus gets approved or not. Those are some of the things like the more extreme versions that we've experienced, I know, in terms of verbs on a syllabus. Right. The students are probably not reading that as we've talked about before. So it doesn't really matter. You know, when I think about like, what's my learning objective for today? You know, it's like, okay, well, today we're going to learn about the Supreme Court. That's, that's what we're going to learn about. Um, And I think that the need to write something in a specific way is probably misplaced. I'm I'm confused right now. Did you, did you guys just say that there's some clearinghouse that is not the instructor record that vets your syllabi? What, what the yeah. hell is that? <laughs> so, at, I mean, at Texas Tech, I was the director of undergraduate studies. And to get a new class approved, you had to submit a syllabus for that new class. So, Anthony, if you wanted to create a new class that's not in the catalog, there's a, there's a process by which that course gets approved. And to do that, it has to have a syllabus, which makes sense because they want to know that you've really thought this course through. But they take a look at things like where are your learning objectives on the syllabus and what do those look like and what verbs do they contain. Um, Instructional designers who are approving online courses um, often do the same thing with ensuring that you've met these uh, best practices requirements. Uh, And it can feel really onerous for faculty, especially those who like you're probably worried about um, who are focused on their academic freedom as professors. Oh. So for example, what that ends up translating to, I built an online course that had some some funding connected to it to develop it out, which was great. I was assigned an, um, an instructional designer that can be helpful for people who have never developed an online course, don't really have technical skills, but know their content. And so in theory, that works really well. In practice, it meant that I had to have Gagne's nine events every single week. So every single unit or module or week, however you, you know, sort of designed your content had to have nine events. So that meant they wanted me to have like three assignments on a given day. And that's not meaningful to students. So what ends up happening is you have things like, you know, post in the chat, little things rather than constructively building over time and developing something that really shows everything they've learned in application of content. It's just like, check these boxes. So I did these nine things. And so it becomes busy work. Mm-hmm. It becomes onerous on the students. It becomes onerous on us because we're grading all of this busy work. And so, Ugh. you know, in terms of what we anecdotally know works <laughs> in terms of thinking about the life of a course and, and you know, constructing and, and thinking about knowledge for students and, and skills that can transfer to other places in their life, it sort of flies in the face of that. But there's a paper somewhere that says Ghanaian's nine events. And we all just sort of rallied around this and accepted it without truly studying it empirically. Mm. Mm. I don't like that. As somebody, <laughs> as somebody who has like five things on his syllabus that are due, like I can't because, I mean, I guess we all took courses. It's like, you know, you, 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 you remember what you like. You remember what you didn't like. I didn't like discussion boards. So I don't do them. They're just not there. They don't exist. Mm-hmm. We do other stuff. Right. And so I didn't, I didn't like a bunch of busy work. Like give me the stuff for all the marbles so I can work on it and put my all into it. And that be the song for the class. I don't want to do a whole bunch of madness. I got other stuff to do. So we're only going to do these things, but I need you to do them really well. 
And dang, if that doesn't motivate a student, it's like, look, there's only four things that there's here to do. So I hope you do them. I hope you do them to the best of your ability. There's nothing to bail you out. Like, I, I, w- I would be very upset if somebody was like, yeah, we, we need more discussion posts in your syllabus. Like, I, I'd be like, well, it's not going to happen. I don't know. I don't know how you like, I, I don't know. Like, maybe I'm just sheltered by the, like these discussions that like, I, this is all new to me. I don't know. What, I, aside from what Rebecca's told me about the horror, but. It's almost like you're saying that you as a professor are an expert in your subject and how to teach it. And you don't need administrators to tell you that you're doing it wrong. But I feel like I'm the two boxes over here is the same experts. Like I'm confused. (laughs) Exactly. I'm so confused. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. It can be really frustrating to feel. So, I mean, I look back on like the first class I ever taught, right? So if y'all to think back on the first time you ever taught a class. I sweated so hard. I sweated so hard. I feel really bad. I mean, it was a disaster. Um, So I I, I assigned everything. Those poor students. I printed my lecture out and read it to them. Oh, I Um, love it. Yeah. So, so I think instead of, you know, thinking about we, what we need is instructional designers to tell us what we're doing wrong. Um, We've been teaching for a while. We've gone through this and maybe an instructional designer or somebody to to talk to someone about their first class might be helpful. Did either of you have any um, help or guidance when you taught your first class or did you just kind of have to show up and do it? Show up and do it. Thankfully, uh, my master's program was contingent on graduate teaching assistants. And, and and the whole reason I went was because there was a major, like, this is how you teach component. And nice. the instructional communication people at that institution are like, renowned, like they're the top people in their field. And so they they were real good at saying, okay, there's content knowledge, and that's fine. Everybody has that. But the actual ability to teach is a skill that we're going to give to you. And so we had like, you know, before the semester even started, there was like three weeks of training where we were together in this cohort that was part of our funding package. And so, no, I felt very supported in terms of like, this is how you do it. But yeah, I know that that's not normally even like I have PhD students that are like, yeah, no, nah, they threw a book at me and told me to teach. Like, I'm like, oh, right. oh, yep. so I know that that's unique to my situation. Yeah, and I think that it often speaks to the the fact that many PhD granting institutions perceive themselves as training future research researchers as opposed to training future teachers. Mm-hmm. Especially at an R one institution like Texas Tech, so the political science PhD program, we're at an R one, a highly research intensive program. But most of our students aren't going to end up at R1s or R2s or even R3s. Um, It's not a top program for political science PhDs. I think that not preparing students for teaching does them a disservice on the job market. And I know that the political Mm -hmm. science Texas Tech has started prioritizing that a little more because they see that their graduate, you know, the the graduates of the PhD program are going to community colleges and, and adjuncting. So they need teaching more than they need the ability to be a political scientist researcher. But I think that some of what we learn as what is best practices in teaching comes from just being in the classroom. So you can put someone through a, you know, a five week, here's how to teach 
you can tell them about Blooms, you can tell them about Gagne, um, you can show them the non-existent research that they work, but really what we need is, is people to get in the classroom and get familiar with what it is that teaching is. And going back to what we were talking about earlier, having some forgiveness on those student evaluations. So, so sometimes I like to try really new and unique things in the classroom. One semester I was teaching a really difficult math class for political science students. And they're not used to math, you know. So I was teaching, I was teaching game theory and formal modeling, and it's hard for them. So I offered them the option of instead of taking any exams, all you have to do is come to class every day. Just come to class. We'll do in-class activities. I felt like I was seeing so often that my exam, my students' exam scores were correlating so perfectly with their attendance anyway. Just cut out the middleman. Let's just mm -hmm. come to class and learn and talk and discuss and figure things out together. And some of the students really liked that format because they never had to cram for an exam. You know, they came to class and we learned and we talked and some of the students really didn't. Mm -hmm. and, and that reflected in my student evaluations, but the allowance of saying to a professor who's been teaching a long time, who knows their subject material, who wants to try something really new and creative, having that space to say, we know that this is new and unique and different, and you might get punished for it on your student evaluations, especially if you're a woman or a faculty member of color, letting them have that, you know, sort of bump down in evaluations without it risking their employment is so important to teaching, to good teaching, to learning how to teach well, to figuring out what students respond to. Because if we're just beholden to our evaluations, we're gonna do the same format every year and grade the same amount of easy and, you know, just try to make sure our students are happy. And I feel like you've hit on several points, but from a perspective of, you know, my brain always goes to systemic change and policies. What are some policies that could be implemented to, to really sort of change the culture that you've been talking about throughout this episode in terms of state level, federal level, but also just within institutions internally? Yeah, I think the number one thing I always champion is making sure that student evaluations can't count for employment decisions, that they can't be, um, they're a discriminatory measure. Um, going back to talking about being a mother in academia, the semester I had Finn, my third baby, the one where I took two weeks off, um, some a student commented in their official evaluation that I was on maternity leave the whole semester, so I was no help. Whoa. Infuriating, because I was only off for two weeks, for one thing. But on the other hand, I had a human. Like, right. I, it's absurd to penalize a faculty member mm -hmm. for giving birth. Um, and discriminatory, it's illegal. So I think that this is the number one thing that universities can do without really doing anything else. They can do this on their own, um, just refuse to allow them. I think student evaluations can be really helpful for us as faculty to improve. So if we try something new and risky and we see that students hate it, we can use that information to decide if we ever wanna do it again. But having them not count for employment is critical. Of course, I also think that systemic change in terms of parental leave is important. And one thing that, you know, I don't want to get too into because I know we're right at the end, but there have been some research that shows that when both um, mothers and fathers are given leave, fathers use that leave to publish. And so it ends up benefiting fathers and yeah. um, analyzing mothers. Um, so the question of who should get parental leave and for how long is critical because if, if fathers take 12 weeks paid and mothers take 12 weeks paid and the fathers end up all getting promoted and the mothers all end up getting, you know, not tenured. 
that's bad. That's just, that's just as bad. So I think really looking at what are the effects of these policies and how can we make sure that mothers, fathers, and non-parents are all being evaluated on the same level. You know, everyone needs to be sort of put at the same, the same point, whether you have a child, whether you're a mother, whether you're a father, we need to make sure we have policies in place to keep that more equitable. One more critical question, really the question of the day before we get to your quote. Can you tell Anthony why he needs to watch The Office? Oh, Anthony. Oh, my goodness. So You've my- never watched it, right? I, I use uh, I use the Diversity Day episode in class, but that's the only oh, I one love I've it. seen. <laughs> yeah. So my, my husband, Ross, had never seen The Office and was getting really tired of my constant quotes from The Office. Um, that was all I ever did was quote the office at him. So finally he watched it. And those first few episodes, he felt really uncomfortable because like you said, with the diversity episode, it's very cringy. It, it mm. very much puts you in a space where you're thinking, is this allowed? Can I watch this? Um, but by the end of the first season, he was hooked. So I highly recommend if, if for nothing other than you can finally understand all of Rebecca's references. Mm. I mean, you know, I got to get through the queen's gambit, but I, oh, yeah, I will, I will, I will commit to trying to watch it again. Oh, okay. I'll go that far. Okay. All right. Well done, Christina. <laughs> that's, a, that's a tangible commitment right there. Yes. Well, Christina, thank you so much for talking with us today in the midst of mothering an infant and doing your multiple jobs. We really, really appreciate your time. For sure. Thank you. Yeah. What is the quote of the week? I'm thinking I'm going to have to quote someone who I think is really philosophical voice of our time, um, Rebecca Black. (laughs) Kicking in the front seat or kicking in the back seat, you've got to make your mind up. Which seat will you take? Mm. Mm -mm. Yes, our dear Rebecca Black. (laughs) (laughs) This has been This is for the CV. Thanks for listening, Mom. This is for the CV is a Larson and Lestrat production. Editing done by Rebecca Larson. Music performed by Issa Black. Thanks, man.